Songwriters have rallied against injustice for much of American history, and there are few injustices as egregious, in my opinion, than the death penalty. In 1989, Troy Davis, a black man, was convicted of murdering an off-duty police officer, a crime for which he maintained his innocence. He was sentenced to die by the hands of the state, but not without the outcry from musicians all over the world. Nellie McKay, State Radio, Pete Rock, all of them lifted up their voices in support for clemency for Davis. Their amplification of this case led to widespread awareness of Troy Davis's potential innocence. And just a few months before his execution, several witnesses recanted their evidence. No weapon was ever found in connection with the murder. And yet, Troy Davis was killed by the state in 2011. Musicians haven't given up the fight against injustice, and countless artists, including myself, use their platform to rally against the death penalty. It's my hope that the power of song can help dissolve institutions cruel and unusual, and that the power of love will set us free. My name is Micah McKee. I'm a songwriter, and this is American 100. Broadcasting from the musical center of the universe into the vast stretches of the universe, this is American 100. Welcome one and all to American 100, the show where we discuss the random and not-so-random beauty of music. This is my trusted robot companion, Rando. Hello, humans. At the end of every episode, Rando randomly decides on two songs to discuss for the following episode. Rando selects two numbers and a year, and we break down the songs from the Billboard year-end Hot 100 chart that correlate with those numbers. And at the end of the last episode, Rando selected the year 1971 and the numbers 29 and 79, which correlate with Temptation Eyes by The Grassroots and Woodstock by Matthew's Southern Comfort. So without further ado, let's take a trip back to one of my favorite years, 1971. Joni Mitchell wrote this song about the experience of traveling to and being at Woodstock in 1969. Which is funny, because Joni Mitchell was never actually there. Music gives us the ability to invent memories. We can be swept away to places in our minds to where we can only dream of having been. Gillian Welch wrote April the 14th, a song that name-checks the Dust Bowl, the Titanic, and the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Her lyrics are rich, tactile, and heartfelt, 
In this song, she describes the events as emotionally vivid as you'd imagine an eyewitness would. And that's exactly what Joni Mitchell did with her song, Woodstock. The Woodstock Music and Art Festival of August 1969 is the first and last of its kind. Over half a million people attended the three-day gathering on a dairy farm in Bethel, New York. The owner of the farm was one Max Yasger, a conservative Republican, who believed that the festival had the potential to quell generational tension. It's believed that three children were born at the festival and three people died. Sly and the Family Stone, Santana, Joan Baez, Melanie Safka, and scores of other groups performed day and night amidst rain, mud, and questionable sanitation. It's the stuff of legend, and just as important as the music that came to Woodstock is the music that came from it. What was the controversy about the national anthem and the way you I don't know. That? All I did was play it. I'm American, so I played it. I used to have to sing it in school. They made me sing it in school, so mm-hmm. it's a flashback, you know. I don't know about it. Jimi Hendrix was a superstar by 1969, having achieved success with his backing band, The Experience. But it was at Woodstock that for the first time he featured a backing band comprised largely of black musicians. Rhythm guitarist Larry Lee, percussionist Juma Sultan, and the incredibly prolific bass player Billy Cox who played with everyone from Little Richard to Etta James to Sam Cooke. This was Jimi Hendrix's Gypsy Sun and Rainbows, an ensemble that captured the groove and tension within Hendrix's brain unlike anything before it. After Woodstock, Hendrix got the Woodstock band back together and called it Band of Gypsies. They put out one legendary live album, and Jimi Hendrix would be dead just a few months later. The opening act at Woodstock was the transcendent Richie Havens. Havens blends elements of folk with soul and R&B, and the method by which he does this is through open guitar tunings. Woodstock was the turning point in Haven's career, and initially he was hired to play a short opening set. But the band Stillwater, who was set to play next, was stuck in traffic on the way to the festival, so Richie Havens launched into a series of Beatles covers, including this Eastern-inspired version of Here Comes the Sun. The Beatles themselves made no appearance at the festival, but they had still found their way to Woodstock.
Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young had only performed one live show before Woodstock. Hendrix, Robbie Robertson, Paul Butterfield, and other musical luminaries stood in the darkness watching CSNY at 3.30 in the morning on the final day of the festival. Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young were reasonably terrified. There is a tremble that you can hear in their harmonies during the acoustic part of their set. But it is in the electric set that the band really solidifies. Their performance of Long Time Gone is one for the ages, and at this point in the set, singer-songwriter Graham Nash must have felt like he had been at Woodstock for an eternity. When he returned from that farm at Bethel, New York, he related what he had seen and heard and felt at Woodstock to his then-romantic partner, Joni Mitchell. Joni wrote it down, and it became the song Woodstock, a song that the band Matthews Southern Comfort would cover and propel to the number 79 spot on the Billboard year-end Hot 100 of the year 1971. The song Woodstock simultaneously displays lyrical depth while remaining relentlessly grounded on planet Earth. Matthew's Southern Comfort gives the Mitchell composition a groove that takes us into the gates of the festival while hinting at the weariness of the mud-soaked crowd. Joni Mitchell said that she was able to capture the feeling of being at Woodstock so well because of her longing to have been there. In this way, Woodstock seems like an unattainable object of affection, some distant lover that exists only in one's fantasy or fever dream. The Matthews of Matthews Southern Comfort is one Ian Matthews, the lead singer of seminal 1960s folk group Fairport Convention. Fairport Convention had played the Isle of Wight Festival in 1968, so they were somewhat aware of the highs and lows of festival life. They're able to bring this wisdom to the song Woodstock, making the listener feel enveloped in the thick electricity of festival air. This song was incredibly successful, and it became the definitive ode to the festival in Bethel, New York. How weirdly impressive is it that almost no one involved in its production was present at Woodstock itself. We 
But I suppose that's how quickly Woodstock transformed from event to legend. And legends, they don't need eyewitnesses. They just need good storytellers. Coming up, folk, pop, and soul collide. You're listening to American 100. Can you tell me your name uh, and what it is that you do for your work? Uh, my name is Brad Spiegel, and I'm a resilience planner for the Louisiana Watershed Initiative. On the first episode of River Runs Backwards, we covered the concept of watersheds with our expert, Bradley Spiegel. He took us on a tour of his neighborhood where the city is implementing a project using the concept of something called green infrastructure to mitigate flooding. I'd love to show you. Right, let's go. <laughs> However, we were not able to take a deep dive into the material that day. But luckily for y'all, we recorded the whole thing. Is that cool? It is cool. <laughs> now, we offer Brad's entire interview as a little bit of land yap for our Patreon subscribers. That This house is much higher than what we're standing on in the street. Uh-oh. Gunshot or firework? Firework. Firework. Yeah, firework. <laughs> the good and the bad. Just go to patreon.com slash radio. Even as little as a dollar a month means the world to us. Plus, you'll get swag. And don't forget to subscribe to River Runs Backwards wherever you get your podcasts. One of the greatest things about pop music is its ability to become whatever it wants to become. Pop bands go through changes, and usually their music changes with them. And few bands have changed as often as the grassroots. But before we get to this strange and shape-shifting group, let's go back to their roots, the folk rock movement of the American West Coast. Met my mother this morning, coming up the hill so soon, trying to get to heaven in due time for the heaven don't close. John Phillips, Michelle Phillips, Cass Elliott, Denny Doherty, they all came from the world of folk music. John Phillips played in this band, The New Journeyman. The New Journeyman were pure early 60s folk music, acoustic guitar, banjo, pleasant harmonies. But it was Cass Elliott who had something extra to bring to the table. Her work with the group The Mugwumps proved that folk music could be something more, something layered, something with a backbeat. I call your name, but you're not there. Was I to blame for being? Phillips, Elliot, and Doherty called themselves the Mamas and the Papas, and their brand of folk pop rock was so hard to categorize that people simply stopped trying. Their influence spread into popular music consciousness like wildfire and proved that folk music still had plenty more frontiers left to blaze.
This is the song Everybody by Tommy Rowe. Predating the Mamas and the Papas by about three years, this recording laid out a blueprint for the blend of folk and soul that the Mamas and the Papas would later perfect. In fact, one of Tommy Rowe's producers was Steve Barry, a curious songwriter who would become a major contributor to Dunhill Records, the label that would sign the Mamas and the Papas. Steve Barry later wrote a tune called Where Were You When I Needed You? and he sent the demo to radio stations all over the San Francisco Bay Area. Steve Barry and his partner P.F. Sloan promoted this tune under the band name The Grassroots, a name that over a dozen different musicians would play under for the next 50 years. Steve Barry and P.F. Sloan had founded The Grassroots, a band name without a band, and shopped the concept around to several groups on the West Coast. They discovered a relatively new rock band called The 13th Floor. Its members were Warren Entner, Rick Coots, and Creed Bratton. If the name Creed Bratton sounds familiar, that's because it's the same Creed Bratton that would go on to play a fictionalized version of himself on the show The Office, starring Steve Carell. The 13th Floor added bass player and singer Rob Grill and changed their name officially. They would become The Grassroots, and with the guidance of Steve Barry and P.F. Sloan, they would bring a fresh approach to the folk rock movement. In 1967, right at the beginning of the Summer of Love, they'd release Let's Live for Today, an anthem that encapsulated the hippie ethos better than any song that year. The next year, the grassroots were playing around with horns and dabbling in rock and soul vibes. They released Midnight Confessions. Most of the instrumentation on this recording is by the legendary session group The Wrecking Crew. And it was clear that by 1969, even though the grassroots had been through several members, they had honed their sound and settled in on something between Cass Elliott and Wilson Pickett. And it was in 1971 that they'd reached the Billboard Hot 100 with a hit that would last 18 weeks on the charts. The song Temptation Eyes is a perfect example of what happens when a band deviates from their formula so much that they end up creating a new one.
The lyrics about temptation and desire are extremely outdated and just aren't very good, but it's the song's sound that gives it all of its power. The grassroots blend of folk rock and soul is seamless here, and you can't help but admire the commitment to the formula. Nineteen seventy one is one of my favorite years in all of music, mostly because of its incredible diversity and its influence on everything after it. This, for instance, was informed by the long and convoluted road that was initially paved by early folkies in the nineteen sixties, as well as the hippies that Mama Cass and her crew associated with. But then it went on to influence popular modern indie rock. In fact, the replacements did a cover of this song for their Let It Be sessions in 1984. Pop music had changed once again and kept changing because that's what it does. Mama Cass once said, you've got to make your own kind of music, sing your own special song, even if nobody else sings along. The grassroots were able to do that with their music, and it was all made possible by those who were willing to change and blend. They are a pretty good example of the diversity of pop music in 1971, a year where music was all over the place, the way it should be. Coming up, we talk about musical left turns. You're listening to American 100. No Dream Deferred is excited to announce its Summer Dream Studio, a black-led, affordable, affirming virtual learning campus for all, with classes for everyone from youth to adult and flexible payment options. These summer courses promise to enrich and inspire our entire community. For more information, visit our Facebook page or our Instagram at NDDNOLA. Hey folks, thanks for listening to American 100. I'm Micah McKee and I wrote the original music for this show and produced it along with Asher Griffith. And if you like content like this, then uh, think about dropping something in our jar. Head over to patreon.com slash cicada radio. Even a pledge of as little as a dollar a month means the world to us. We do this show because we love music and we love radio. So head to patreon.com slash cicada radio and uh, help us out if you can. Thanks. I love it when songwriters take hard left turns in their musical styles. The ability to transform and pull a fast one on your audience is a beautiful trick indeed. Here are a few of my favorite examples. The band Low is one of my all-time favorite indie rock groups. They formed in the early 1990s as a three-piece, and they perfected the subgenre slowcore. Brooding, intense, lulling, and dark. This was the kind of elegant rock music that Low was so great at for well over a decade. 
But in 2005, they teamed up with Flaming Lips producer Dave Friedman to bring their audience something strange and new. They called this record The Great Destroyer. It had plenty of darkness and brooding quality to it, but it was louder, more energetic, and more aggressive. This was completely different than anything they had done before. Lowe's reinvention continues to this day, and they remain a perfect example of a band that would rather change than quit. Broadcast was a psychedelic pop group from the UK in the 90s and the early 2000s. Their work was often compared to Stereolab because of its 1960s mod-inspired aesthetic, but Broadcast existed on a slightly different plane. Their work is cerebral, but infectious enough to get lodged in your synapses, expansive and multifaceted, a sonic layer cake in Technicolor. But in 2005, they took a slight left turn with their album, Tender Buttons. On Tender Buttons, they pared down their sound to its raw essentials, incorporating primitive synthesizers and repetitive mantra-like choruses. The record would unfortunately be Broadcast's final studio offering to the world. Lead singer and songwriter Trish Keenan passed away unexpectedly after she had contracted swine flu in 2011. A paean to the power of simplicity and intention, Tender Buttons is an affecting final portrait of a band unbound and a brief portal into what could have been. So much has been said and written about the universe's greatest gift to music, Aretha Franklin, but I feel that in a segment about artists taking profound left turns in their songwriting, the song Daydreaming must be mentioned. Written and composed by none other than the Queen herself, Daydreaming takes Aretha's work into the otherworldly, stretching her soulfulness into the psychedelic realm. In it, she describes her unrealized love for Dennis Edwards of The Temptations. 
but never mind who this song is about. The song itself is a masterwork of formless genius. True spiritual devotion. Donny Hathaway plays the ethereal electric piano on this song, and the incomparably prolific Hubert Laws is featured on flute, giving it the featherlight mystical tone it deserves. Aretha never wrote another song like this. She wrote plenty of great tunes, but none of them are more pure, more celestial, and more extra-dimensional than daydreaming. What's that time again? Time to randomly select the year and the two songs that we are going to talk about on the next episode of American 100. Commencing randomization. The year 2004 and the numbers 36 and 67. Which correlate with White Flag by Dido and Headsprung by LL Cool J. American 100 is produced by me, Micah McKee, along with Asher Griffith and is, of course, presented by Cicada Radio. And before we leave the year 1971, I want to leave you all with what a lot of folks consider to be the greatest album of all time, What's Going On by Marvin Gaye. Here's the song Inner City Blues. From all of us at American 100, thanks for listening, and always keep a song in your heart. This is Cicada Radio. Sing, love, die.